Anna Marie Cox, and I believe podcasts are the cleansing fire which burns away the lies we've told each other and the lies we've told ourselves. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I know I'm using this line again, and I totally get the reference, but Tahiti really is a magical place. Welcome to Space the Nation, <laughs> where we look at science fiction through the lens of sovereign immunity and activation synthesis theory. Today, we'll be talking about Sandman. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Don't Worry, Darling. Mixed reviews for that. I'm a little surprised. There, there's some drama that surrounds that film, apparently, oh, which that, we're going to have to talk too. about. There yes, are memes. Yes, there are lots yes. of memes. Oh, yes. We're also going to talk about the book foundation for our mm-hmm. Cannon Fodder series. Then we'll talk about the original series, Strange New Worlds crossover episode they did at the end. For Star Trek. Yes. Yeah, for Star Trek for the series finale of Strange New Worlds. And then by popular demand. Yes, yes. We know our listeners want this, and we are happy to provide it. We will be doing our best of Futurama episode. There you go. And I am a Futurama newbie. I have never seen a whole episode. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't think I was going to be the veteran of the two of us. I mean, I've only seen like two or three episodes, but I have seen an episode from beginning to end. If you want to become a patron of our show, you can visit patreon.com slash space the nation. There are lots of good reasons to become a patron Mm -hmm. among them. I I hear there's swag. I've never actually seen the swag in person, but (laughs) I hear it exists. And then also you get episodes early and you can be a member of our discord, which is a lovely community that Dan sometimes deigns to visit. You know what? I think an underrated element of becoming a patron is just the sheer capacity to guilt Anna and myself. (laughs) All right. I think we haven't really talked about this. and We need to lean into this fact, which is on occasion, Anna and I forget to do things. It's not always. We're usually pretty diligent, but occasionally we forget. And you, the patrons, can guilt us by basically reminding us of obligations we have agreed to that we really do need to honor. And and the guilt works because we do like doing the show and we do want our patrons to be happy. So if you want to guilt us, for the love of God, become a patron. Effectively guilt us. Because once you've given us, us money, yes. we really feel bad if we don't follow yeah, through. Exactly, yes. We are prisoners of capitalism just like everyone else. And once you know the contract has been signed, we do feel an obligation to provide the goods, as it were. You can also reach us uh, via Twitter. I am at Dan Dresner. She is... At Anna Marie Cox. Very good. And Dan, we just recorded a whole Ask Us Anything. So I (laughs) actually know the answer to this question, but I will ask you anyway. Mm -hmm. How are you? I'm really goddamn good, Anna. I gotta say. But I, you know what? I cannot get tired of hearing that, especially in this period. (laughs) Yeah, yes. In our current circumstance... The things. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of things going on. And, you know, uh, we might we might come talk about that at some point. But yeah, I'm in a really good place. You know, as I said, uh, as listeners are aware, I was I spent a a long time in French Polynesia in the beginning of this month. And then I came back and I had two other immediate trips, one to Montreal and one to London. I actually managed to get through all these trips without catching COVID. So that in and of itself makes me happy. But also the trips were fun. And more importantly, I'm now back home and I'm looking forward to not traveling for a while. So that that's also really good. And like teaching, I'm teaching without masks on it. That's awesome. It's hard to, hard to stress how occasionally uncomfortable it was to teach with a mask last year. I understood the logic for it. It wasn't that I didn't, you know, I totally got it, but you know, we're not doing that anymore. So that's good. But Anna, how are you? I know this the answer to this question too, but I think I want to hear it from you. I'm pretty good. We are still in the high to mid-90s for temps down here, and that is 
not great. <laughs> that's I just really... because you posted swimsuit pics on it. Uh, that's how hot it is. That's I'm how sorry. hot it is. Yes. I couldn't resist that. That was. I apologize for that. But those but yes. swimsuit pictures actually. So full disclosure, they're taken last winter. So they're not. Mm-hmm. They're actually me at forty nine, not fifty. But still, like I think yeah. they count. And I realize that my tan has faded in the oh. summer because I actually go outside less. Right, because it's hot as hell. Because it's down stupid, there, stupid murder hot. Yes. But you know, it, I went. I moderated a panel uh, for the like a big deal panel for the first time in a long time. Uh, oh, cool. Wendy Davis, Donna Howard, who's a Texas state legislator, and then Alexis McGill, who's the president of Planned Parenthood. You'll never guess what we talked about, but. Dan. I'm assuming it's the Cowboys yeah. or abortion, one of those two. I mean, it, maybe abortion, but mostly the Cowboys. You know. So it's nice to do things you're good at. Yes, you know? and you are good at that, I would add. So, so I I enjoyed being the moderator. I enjoyed kind of remembering like, oh, right, like this is a skill I have. It's like I, recovering the muscle memory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm actually pretty good today, even though I had to good. get up really early for that panel, and that, that wasn't fun. But also, happy birthday, I would add. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, I am 50. I don't feel it. I don't know what 50 is supposed to feel like, but I feel like neither, I don't feel it. You neither feel nor look it, Anna. Let's just, <laughs> you know, put that out there. Which is so, good. Dan, why are we talking about Sandman? We are talking about Sandman because you told me you liked it in a podcast that we had at the very end of what we did over the summer. Um, and said I should watch it. And you know what? I listened to your opinions on these matters, Anna. So I did start watching because I had st- I think I'd watched half an episode before we had that conversation. And so you pushed me to to finish watching that episode and go on. I respect your opinion a lot. And I did, in fact, enjoy it. So I thought it would be worth talking about it. Yeah, and I think it's an unusual entry for us. It's yeah. a non-Marvel comic. Uh- <laughs> True. Technically, it's DC, right? Yeah, I mean, it is DC. Yeah. And it is an interesting kind of half it borrows from fantasy and from science fiction yeah so it's a it's a cool subject for us i didn't think i'd like it to be honest Mm -hmm. and i put off watching it until one night uh you know that's how i make a lot of decisions about what to watch it's like (laughs) 10 30 and i'm like i want to watch something but i've run out of great british baking show episodes uh (laughs) and then i actually really liked it and I've decided that's because I didn't realize what a crush I had on Robert Smith as a <laughs> Like, I'd somehow buried that. I did, I'm not going to lie. There was a small part. I was like, I, when we talk about this episode, I'm going to have some criticisms of the show. But I actually, on the whole, did like it. But I, I confess, watching Dream, I kept wondering, so when is the Cure soundtrack going to kick in? Like, what are we talking about here? I mean, come on. He's you know. hotter than Robert Smith, though. Oh, wow. Tom Sturbridge, okay. I think. I think he de- I think he does a great job and yeah it's funny because I actually I did really like the cure but I don't think of myself as having like a goth type like mm-hmm. the emaciated like <laughs> sullen wan British pouty <laughs> that's not usually you know. my type but for yeah. some reason he makes it work you know and I, I was Fair drawn enough. to he I think he's a very charismatic actor and yeah. It was fun to watch the series, and and we will discuss further, but I think the series has kind of a wink to it that makes it <laughs> tolerable in a way that some gothy things aren't. So. That's fair, yes. Let's get to uh, Chekhov's What's It? This is a section where we talk about something that appears usually in the first part of the book-slash-movie-slash-TV show we watch that is clearly going to be clued in later, you know, that, that we know is going to play an important role in the plot. 
Anna, what was your Chekhov's what's it? I have Chekhov's conscience for the Sandman, perhaps. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of his willingness to step back from his divine powers and mm-hmm. be human, for, for lack of a better term. Or at least appreciate humanity, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Uh, comes and goes mm-hmm. throughout the series, but I think it winds up making itself known. That's fair. I have Chekhov's villain um, in that the primary villain in this this season was the Corinthian, uh, played by Boyd Holbrook. And he appears in the first episode and appears a little bit, I think, in the second episode. But there is a long stretch of this show where he's gone. We don't see him. And then he finally pops back up again, which was, I think, because of the way they which parts of the comic they decided to adapt but it was sort of an odd way of like you introduce him and then we don't see him for a long stretch of time and now we get to the story behind the story so anna i understand that this started out as a dc comic closes wikipedia page (laughs) yeah there is a lot that i could say (laughs) about the sandman's backstory the first thing i'll say is that yes we're in the dc universe which i think some people might not know if you just watched uh the tv show And also, the Sandman has a long history in the DC universe. The original Sandman comic book ran from 1939 to 1946. It was a Jack Kirby creation. I did not know that. I assume this was a Neil Gaiman creation. Okay, I'm learning a lot already. Keep going. He wore a green business suit, a fedora, and a gas mask. So you can kind of actually see, like, oh, that gas mask. (laughs) Like, that. maybe that's... The gas mask was weird, yeah. Where we get the helm from, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he used a gun that shot sleeping gas to ah, sedate okay. criminals. Uh, yeah. Then 1974 through 1976, there was a second Sandman. And it okay. was more like the Sandman of myth. He carried a pouch of dream dust. Mm-hmm. And his main task was protecting children from nightmare monsters, which doesn't sound very DC to me. Doesn't sound like... That would okay, is it wrong for two that I years now, of comics? <laughs> I now very badly want to see a Sandman Monsters Inc. crossover. <laughs> that would actually, I think, that would be hilarious. Potentially, that would be. It would. It would require DC and Marvel getting together, which yeah. can't happen. But like, it's still. I'm just pointing that out. There's one more iteration before the Neil Gaiman iteration, oh, which okay. is 1988 to 1990. The Sandman was the Silver Scarab, Hector Hall, and Hector okay. Hall is a name that might be familiar for people that watch the tv series hector hall is a character in the tv series he is not sandman or the silver, silver scarab but like in the series there's this whole like he turns out to be dead and only living in dreams thing so spoiler i guess okay. our sandman started in 1989 mm-hmm. and went to march 1996 there is a lot of ip that we could talk about <laughs> We don't. We we shall not. And also, Neil Gaiman, a cultural icon. There's a lot Mm -hmm. I could say about him. I'm just going to say a couple things. One is that the Sandman is recognized to be a watershed sort of cultural moment for uh, comic books as literature. Mm -hmm. It was one of the only comic books. in the 80s and 90s that was a new york times bestseller along with mouse the watchman and the dark knight returns mm-hmm. it's one of five graphic novels to make the entertainment weekly 100 best reads of the last 20 years and norman mailer called it a comic strip for intellectuals norman mailer norman mailer my okay. favorite description of its influence comes from dc comics writer and executive paul levitt's quote 
The Sandman became the first extraordinary success as a series of graphic novel collections, reaching out and converting new readers to the medium, particularly young women on college campuses. Uh, (laughs) Whoa, I was not expecting the sentence to end that way. Okay. uh, All right. Sure. It has a very long and troubled history as uh, adaptation. Mm. It started way back in 1991. Uh, was the beginning of attempts to adapt it. Mid-90s, there was actually a attempt to adapt it by Roger Avery, who co-wrote Pulp Fiction. And the script would have been by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who are the authors of Aladdin, Pirates of the Caribbean, and Shrek. (laughs) So that could have been interesting. Yeah. In 2010... The guy who turned out to be the supernatural showrunner, Eric Kripke, was attached. Mm -hmm. That probably made it the closest. And if people are really curious, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the parallels between Supernatural and The Sandman. Eric Kripke clearly, like, pulled stuff that he loved uh, from it. In 2013, it probably came the closest to being a movie Mm-hmm. It was at Warner Brothers with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, he would have been good. Oh, that would have been interesting. Okay. Agree. Yeah. In 2016, Neil Gaiman took to Twitter to remind people that he did not own the intellectual property. As people were starting <laughs> to get mad. Like, why did this not exist? We want the Sandman. We want the Sandman. And Neil Gaiman's like, well, sorry. You know, capitalism. So... It is a highly coveted piece of IP, even though it's never been made and also acknowledged to be very difficult to adapt. Yes. Netflix swooped in after they lost their deal with Marvel. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Is apparently one of the largest deals they've done, one of the most expensive TV series DC Entertainment has ever done. Do we know if there's going to be a season two? I believe there is. Okay, that's good to know. Also, for those who are fans of the comics, there's some more IP that'll spin out of that. Um, One that might come up soon is the Dead Boy Detectives, which sounds like something I would like. (laughs) HBO Max is producing that series, supposedly. I promise just a few more things. I keep saying that. I know. Go ahead. There's a lot of gender swapping and diversity present in the TV show that's not present in the comics. A lot of that is not just with Neil Gaiman's okay, but his encouragement. Uh, He appreciates that. Some of the changes include uh, the librarian, Lucien, is in the comic books. A feeble white guy is actually the description that I had. Oh, I'm really glad they In one of the articles I read. Uh, Joanna Constantine, of course, John Constantine. Mm -hmm. And then Lita Hall and Hector Hall. Both are characters in the comic book Hector with Silver Scarab, and Lita, Dan, was the daughter of Earth 2's Wonder Woman. <laughs> okay. That's good to Galt know. in the comic books, or Galt, as she's presented in the series, it's kind of a combination of these two imps, demon imps, a Brute and Glob. Lucifer, not a woman in the series. I actually, like, I think I would say she that Lucifer is non-binary, which to me makes total sense. Yes, like, I agree with that. I think yeah. that, that there's no way Lucifer is bound by gender. Yeah, no the, way. Lucifer no should way. be bi- non-binary, of course. Yeah, and I then, agree. Yeah, if Jed any if and, any any entity should be they, it should be Lucifer. Right, it should be. You're right. It, it should yeah. be. Jed and Rose are both characters in the comic with pretty similar character arcs. Not black, uh, perhaps yeah. not surprisingly. Yeah. In the '90s, very few of comic book character you know heroes were black. Mm-hmm. I'm going to end with one tidbit about Neil Gaiman that I was not aware of. Mm-hmm. His first book was about Duran Duran. What? 
That's amazing. I agree. Wow. Okay. Uh, he wanted to be a journalist. That was apparently done under the guise of journalism or in the guise of journalism. Okay, sure. And then after that, he was offered a job by Penthouse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there is there is a small part of my brain that wants to know if Neil Gaiman had ever penned one of those letters to Penthouse, what it would have looked like. We yeah. we, You know what? If he had, I think he would say... I think he would say, but I, us, I'm yeah, saying but... I want to know what he would have written. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it would have been interesting. That's so the world weird. was robbed of whatever Neil Gaiman would have written for Penthouse. Instead, he's had to slum it with comics. That's horrible. Yeah, instead he's he's slummed it all the way to multiple bestsellers and lots and lots of adaptations. He yeah. seems like a decent person, I have to say. Like, Good to know. He's one of those people that it feels like I'm not mad that he's rich. You know, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, fair enough. All so right. we should get to the actual story now, Dan. Yes, let's get to the plot. Uh, I'm going to preface this by by saying it's somewhat light on plot details because we're trying to summarize, I believe, eleven episodes. So I'm going to be skipping through things a little bit quickly. But let's start with Act One: White Morpheus. Meet Morpheus, a.k.a. Dream, a.k.a. the whitest boy in all the realms, who in 1915 leaves his own kingdom of dreams to capture a rogue, eyeless nightmare called the Corinthian. While he's on Earth, however, he gets caught up in an occult ritual by British aristocrat Roderick Burgess. He was attempting to capture death, but whoops! got Death's brother Dream instead. The Corinthian advises Burgess, who is way out of his depth, how to keep Morpheus imprisoned. Morpheus responds with the silent treatment. Anna, if you were locked up in a glass bowl, stark naked, for more than a century, would you be able to stay perfectly quiet as Dream did? Depends on how mad I was, Dan. <laughs> I have a very strong record of doing things for unreasonably long periods of time out of spite. <laughs> for going really that extra mile in order to spite people, Oh dear. The the one that's probably most relevant here is that uh, some time ago, I pretended to be an airhead for like weeks, <laughs> hoping that my then boyfriend would n notice <laughs> that I was being agreeable to him on everything because I was so mad that he was like we, we were bickering all the time, and I mm -hmm. felt like he was just not taking me seriously like, as a partner, and so right. I decided just to agree with everything he said. And he didn't notice. <laughs> That's bad. Oh, God. No, right. your question might be, why didn't you just break up with him? That is a great question. That is, that is I have that to admit that. That is a really good question. I'm going to point out that your, your attempt to like get back at him seemed like a lose-lose outcome. So I'm just, yeah. Okay, fair enough. All right. This is why I'm in therapy, Dan. That would have been, <laughs> a, a normal person would not have stayed with him out of spite, but rather just walked away. So fair enough. that's on me. Okay. That's on me. Okay. All right, so equipped with Morpheus's totems of power, Burgess and his son thrive, but Burgess's pregnant mistress, Ethel Cripps, absconds with Dream's helm, a pouch of sand, and a ruby. Those are his totems of power. Morpheus's imprisonment induces an epidemic of sleepy sickness in which people lapse into comas. So, flash forward 106 years. Roderick's legitimate son, Alex, is still alive, benefiting from Dream's imprisonment, along with Alex's partner, Paul. After Paul 
accidentally erases part of the runes designed to keep Morpheus bound, Dream uses his power to enter the dream of one of his guards and destroys his cage. He escapes, leaving Alex in a permanent sleep. Um, Anna, I confess that rewatching this, I realized why I actually stopped watching this episode or why, why I wasn't quite into it. I kind of found this first one a slog, in no small part because it starts with this supposedly powerful character trapped by a buffoon in some ways, or trapped by someone way out of his depth, which was sort of a weird way to be introduced to the character. Does that make any sense to you? Yes. And I had a, I, I think it's a brave uh, move, yeah. you know, story-wise, to have an entire episode in which your main character is nonverbal. Right. <laughs> For the most part. Yes. Uh, and not just nonverbal, but motionless. Right. <laughs> so, Flowering, mostly, but yeah. Right. So part of this, I think, is I'm a little more taken with Tom Sturbridge than you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there, there's that. I yeah, also yeah. think that he does a pretty great job of emoting from a crouch position with no oh, clothes on. There, That I will grant you. I mean, the hostility that his motionless like face radiates is actually impressive. Yeah. So, yeah, it was totally believable there. And also, I was intrigued. Because to me, that setup signaled this isn't going to follow a lot of narrative conventions. That this we're we're not going to do a traditional heroic arc here, because a traditional heroic arc, like he would get out, right? Like your main character would escape, and he doesn't escape. He's he's freed basically. Mm -hmm. So freed and has a chip on his shoulder with respect to humanity. Justifiably, I would add. Yes, yes. We just spent a long time in the A. Uh, UA talking about antiheroes. I'm yeah. a little embarrassed we didn't mention Dream because that's a fair point. We should have mentioned Dream because yeah. Dream is an antihero for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And like a good antihero, you understand why he is an antihero. I mean, that's the part where I, I do agree with you. About. Yeah. And I'm also glad I kept watching because it gets better. All right, let's move on to Act Two How Dream Got His Groove Back. Morpheus returns to the Dreaming to find it a husk of its former self. He tries rebuilding it, but is too weak from his long departure and lacking his totems. After summoning the Fates, he goes on a journey to reacquire his sand, his cowl, and his ruby. This involves meeting Joanna Constantine and helping her ex-girlfriend, as well as a trip to Hell where he engages in a duel of wits with Lucifer Morningstar to retrieve his cowl. Anna, let Let's talk about that duel of wits for a second, because visually, I thought it was terrific. Intellectually, until it felt a little bit like a debate tournament where everything winds up, you know, causing nuclear war or something. It was a little weird, I thought. The policy debate and not Lincoln Douglas. Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is a super faithful adaptation of what's in the comics, which Mm -hmm. I'm I'm currently reading the comic books right now. And I think actually reading the comics sort of side by side I don't think I've ever done that before where I'm engaging with both properties simultaneously uh-huh. yeah. has, has given me some thoughts about what makes a successful comics adaptation and what, what comics do better than movies and what right. thing that comics do better than movies is turn a single thought into a longer a longer sequence like yeah. Because comic books, you're so into the art, and the art mm-hmm. is static, and yet it moves over frames. You can spend right. pages and pages on a, this duel of wits, and it seems very kinetic and interesting because you're moving along through the pages, even though right. the content itself is not great. Yeah. And I think 
to me this and I do love the end. I do love that insight. Yes, that was good. I actually did. I like it. There was a good punchline in terms of how Dream wins this debate. But like there was a period where I was like, yeah, I know where this is going. What are we doing here? Like that, that, that I guess was how I felt. Yeah. And the punchline, you, hell can't exist without hope, basically. Right. Like, and that's can, interesting. That right. is legitimately interesting. To me, this felt like an insight that Neil Gaiman had and maybe then came up with a way to get to it. He sort of reverse engineered <laughs> it. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. Ethel heads to Buffalo, New York to see her institutionalized son, John Doe. She gives John a protection amulet that she had traded the ruby for and immediately ages and dies. John leaves and retrieves the ruby, which he has modified with magic to suit him. Morpheus tries to recover it, but is knocked unconscious the moment he tries to use it. While Dream is out, John enters a diner and uses the ruby's powers to make its denizens uh, speak and act on the truth. This results in an awful lot of sex and murder. Morpheus awakes and transports John to the realm of dreams. John appears to use the ruby's power to defeat Morpheus. Crushing the ruby in his hand, John rejoices in his apparent victory, but it's a fake out. Morpheus reveals himself and informs John that by destroying the ruby, its power was released back into its creator, Morpheus. Uh, the dreaming is fully restored. Morpheus still finds himself unsettled, but a visit from his sister Death gets his head right, and he learns again to appreciate humanity. Anna, I think I like these episodes the best, especially the duel between John and Morpheus, which I actually thought was way more visually and, and intellectually interesting than the one with Lucifer Morningstar. And also, the episode featuring Kirby Howell Baptiste is, I'm sorry, the sexiest Death ever. Were you too distracted by Morpheus' sexy brooding? I think that I was just enough distracted <laughs> by Morpheus's sexy brooding. The exact right amount of distraction. David Thewlis plays Oh, yes. and Very good. Very good. Always uh, someone you can't turn away from on the screen. Just yeah. incredibly magnetic presence. His malice in that story arc is palpable and yet... It's coiled, right, for most of that yes. time. Like it's his malice like is just not... waiting to jump out. Like you feel it. Right. You know it's there, but you don't know, A, who the target is, and B, how it's going to manifest. Right. And yeah. so you just feel that that coiled, and I'll say malice and not evil. I think that's that's probably a better way to describe it. Like, Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it's full of resentment, right? Like right. I think, you know, one of the things that makes – him a great character and whether or not I don't know this is the backstory but I feel like this is what I'm getting from David Thewlis is that this is resentment not evil this is I would go even further than that I think John thinks he's right yeah he thinks too. he's doing the world a service but he's also he thinks like resentment. he's resentful that the truth doesn't matter he has yes, this idea that yes. the truth should matter and right. and that curdles into this malice about using yeah. the truth to hurt people yeah. And I'll say, again, very faithful to the comic book for the most part. And there's a gender swap that wouldn't surprise you. But I I think it's another example of like what the comic book can kind of do better. Although I think it's very, very good. To me, it, re- it that scene, those scenes played out like a comic book in a way that yes. was fine. No, I thought, I think that's the closest the show came to actually feeling like a comic book. That one moment where you see like, Morpheus holding John in the palm of his hand. Yeah, I love that. that was a great shot. There's and, a few times where they yeah. they recreate scene, scenes that are drawn literally from drawn comic, from yeah. the comic book, and they're some of them. And I, I can't work. be mad. They're beautiful. Like it's, it's yeah, they it, pop. It's very well done. Yeah. And then the, I'll end on this section by saying I think death should be sexy. <laughs> Fair I think enough. That makes sense to me. That actually does, and I have to say, like that, it, like 
it's not that I like have a long memory of characters who play death, but like this is the sexiest death since Robert Redford in the Twilight Zone is the way I would put it. And you're right. In some ways, you know, death should be sexy. I think that's fair. All right, let's move along to Act 3, Along Comes a Vortex. Morpheus and his trusty librarian Lucian are trying to find the remaining deserters of the Dreaming, which include the Corinthian. In their search, they encounter Rose Walker, a young woman who was separated from her brother, Jed, seven years earlier due to a messy divorce. Rose heads to Cape Kennedy with her widowed lawyer friend Lyda in search of her brother. Lucian soon deduces that Rose is a vortex, an occasional recurrence in which a human commands the power of the dreaming world. The Corinthian is also looking for Rose, knowing that she's the key to constraining dream. He also makes his way to Cape Kennedy. He kills Jed's abusive foster parents and takes him to, and I swear to God I am not making this up, a serial killer convention where he is the keynote speaker. Meanwhile, as Rose's power grows, the line between dreaming and reality starts to blur. Lita becomes pregnant from her dream sex with her late husband. Anna, let's talk about that serial convention. I, I felt like that was an example of something that perhaps works in the comics format, but with actual live human actors playing serial killers, maybe crosses the line a little bit. I mean, or am I just a snowflake here? Cute ideas work better in the comics. Yeah. I think it's because they are, they take up less mental space. Uh-huh. If you have like a joke that just goes a couple pages in the comics or a few fr- a few frames, a few cells, you're like, okay, that was funny. But, you know, turn page, <laughs> move on. You cannot turn the page on this one. Right. <laughs> like, you are stuck at that serial killer convention for it, a while. <laughs> yeah, there is a, I was actually surprised in retrospect how much space was devoted not just to the convention, but to the serial killers. We see meetings about the planning of the serial, you know, killer it, convention. It is unusual yeah. to include logistics in a TV show. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? Uh, yeah. I, I'm someone, we've talked about this briefly before. I love logistics. I'm like a big yeah. planner. I think logistics oh, yeah. can be interesting. But it is weird, like, how much time we spend with these characters. If it were, and I guess the joke is, it's a serial killer convention, right? Right. But... Just because it's a serial killer convention doesn't make it any more interesting than like a middle manager convention for anything else. Like, right. I mean, I, I know that's the, the joke, yeah. right? The joke is that yeah. like it, it, you can have a, you know, Michael Scott of serial killers, I guess. Right. Although this did like one of the things that I couldn't quite figure out was why the Corinthian would want to be involved with this at all. I sort of got that like in some ways it's his people, as it were. But like I, it struck me as slightly implausible that he would lower himself to this. Um, that's what I kept thinking. I wasn't quite sure if they would go in the direction they went, which is these are actual serial killers. Yeah. I thought it might be more interesting to uh, make them fans of serial killers who are not themselves serial killers. That actually would have been more interesting. I agree. It also, may, I think, would have made those scenes a little more tolerable. Uh, and it would have watch. been a commentary on, like, true crime podcasts yeah. and, and whatnot. Yeah. So this also brings me to another insight I had, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. not revelatory but I'll say it anyway, which is that I think comic book adaptations depend more than most on really good acting. Yeah. You have to have that because otherwise it just feels hollow, right? Right. And so I think it it is the character of the Corinthian Boyd Holbrook, Holbrook. who I think makes that work to the extent that it works. Yes. And I think he, by the way, I I think he does do a great job with the role. I think that actually does make it work. So, Dream finally confronts the Corinthian, but Rose's power has weakened Morpheus's ability. Rose, reunited with Jed and realizing that she is in fact blurring dreams and reality, allows Morpheus to dispatch the Corinthian and punish the serial killers. 
The vortex still has to die for equilibrium to be restored. Rose is willing, but at the last second her great-grandmother Unity shows up and reveals that she was supposed to be the vortex, but had suffered from the sleeping sickness for most of the last century. She takes the place of Rose, dying, allowing her great-granddaughter to live, and Lyda to keep her baby. All seems well, except that Dream Sibling's desire and despair still want to take him down, and Lucifer declares war on the Dreaming. Dum dum dum! I thought this plotline wrapped up way too neatly, but I am intrigued by Hell going to war with Dreams. What say you? I felt like there, the backstory of the whole Endless yeah. was neglected. I'm not mad. Mm. Right. Because I, I think focusing on Dream in the world and his relationship with humanity is a lot more interesting. Yeah. But I think that that's what we're going to need. We're going to need to humanize the other beings in the Endless, right? To to yeah. make this interesting. Yeah. I think Gwendolyn Christie does an amazing job with oh, yes. Lucifer. And anything that's going to give us more of her has my Thumbs vote. Up. Absolutely. So, yes. I, but this is also necessary for them. If, if it's going to continue, they're going to have to go back and like fill in the blank spaces on what the endless is, where they came from, what the relationships are. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. That first of all, in some ways, to the extent that there is an arc in this season, it is about dreams, sort of both alienation and then sort of reconnection with humanity. Who he is, while he's obviously more powerful, is also supposed to serve, and so it was. Gratifying to see that, I think, over the course of the season. But you're right. Like, we know that despair and desire are plotting to somehow dispatch Dream. And I'm not entirely sure why. Like, I, I have no idea why they wanted to do this. I have no idea what their relationship is. You know, we even, like, actually, the one element of Death's sort of cameo appearance that was frustrating was why Death didn't try to rescue Dream either when he was trapped. Like, he it was, asks I, her that, I think. And she never answers, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. She just sort of, you know, changes the subject. Death gets away with that, is all I'm saying. But yes, it was, uh, but yeah, so I, this way, if they if they come back with season two, and particularly if a lot of season two takes place not on Earth, but in these different realms of the Endless, we're going to need a little more world building, I think. Let's close with Act 4, talk about a case of writer's block. So there is a bonus episode that combines two plots. The first animated short story is told from the perspective of cats, listening to one Siamese tell her tale about how they need to rebel against the humans. She explains how a prior encounter with Morpheus taught her that cats used to be the dominant species over humans, until man fought back by dreaming, recreating reality, and turning their cat masters into pets. So, Anna, you know, cards on the table, I do not have cats, you have a murder kitten. Did this short work for you? I loved it. <laughs> uh, and I have no doubt that cats are dreaming about ruling us all. Mm-hmm. One could argue they already do. Uh-huh. We do a lot of work for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do not do much work for us. One thought I had watching this, though, was mm-hmm. one of the things that isn't actually said, but I feel like there's sort of an implicitness to it, which is that Morpheus isn't always truthful with humans. And I had a thought that what if what he told cats wasn't true? Do you think he was like flattering the cats? Yeah. Is what you're saying? And he yeah, was also giving them something to dream about. He was giving them hope, as it were. He was giving them purpose, giving them yeah. giving them a reason to dream. That's possible. I love it. I think I also, there is violence against kittens in the story. Mm-hmm. And I, it makes me uncomfortable and sad. Okay. 
But I thought it was really well done. I've had a Siamese before. Siamese are definitely plotting to kill us. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So noted. Yeah. yeah. All right. The second longer and more disturbing story uh, features struggling author Richard Madoc, a one-hit wonder suffering from writer's block. He visits uh, the older author, Erasmus Fry, and trades a bezoar for a lawfully imprisoned Greek muse named Calliope. She begs for her release. Madoc, somewhat affected by this, promises to do so once he writes his next book. Alas, he discovers that by raping her, he receives inspiration. He does this repeatedly until it becomes obvious he never intends to let her go. Calliope summons Morpheus, her former husband, whom she has not seen since a tragic parting after the death of their son Orpheus. Upon receiving her plea, Morpheus appears absolutely enraged at Madoc. After Madoc refuses to release Calliope, Morpheus punishes him with an unstoppable stream of story ideas, to the point where he's writing them on the walls in his own blood. To stop the insanity, Madoc agrees to free Calliope, who asks Morpheus to lift his curse from Madoc, and Morpheus agrees. Madoc subsequently finds himself unable to remember Calliope, Morpheus, or any of the million ideas he was spouting just an hour earlier. Calliope vows to make sure that what happened to her doesn't happen to her sister muses. She and Morpheus share a tender goodbye with the hope that maybe they'll be able to grieve their son properly sometime in the future. Anna, I really liked the choice of making Madoc a good liberal. You see him at various times talking about how, like, the cast of whatever Netflix adaptation he's going to do has to have, like, so many, you know, women and, and people of color and so forth. And I also did like how this episode suggested in some ways Dream's growth as a character, because I don't think the Dream of Episode 1 would have responded in the same way. But I will admit, as a sometime writer, the most terrifying moment in this episode, hands down, uh, was seeing Madoc procrastinating in his writing by Googling himself. I got to go with the rape, Dan. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to say no, but I'll explain why. Keep going. But, I'm going to go yeah. with raping being more terrifying. Okay. Especially since we just talked about this. I didn't realize yeah. it was actual rape until I read your summary. And then I was like, oh, God, of course it was. Right. I was already disturbed by it. I thought he was committing violence against her. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. My brain didn't go to rape, which is a little odd because usually I can see that kind of gender violence everywhere. Right. <laughs> and I don't know why it didn't. I think they did underplay it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is an interesting thing about portraying this kind of thing is that I suspect what they were trying to do was suggest that there was rape going on, but also not do so in an exploitative way. I mean, And not show only... anything that, that would right. be exploitative. But right. once I read it from, from your synopsis, I was like, well, of course, duh. Like, yeah. Yes. Yes, that is what is happening. <laughs> right. I think and, they probably, they could have shown, a, not shown a little more, there, there, there could have been a little more suggestion that that was what was going on. I mean, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a tough line to walk, right. I would say. I yeah. I will agree that <laughs> the scenes of him procrastinating are affecting to anyone that's ever tried to write. Ever had a deadline and ever had is a not deadline. quite sure they're going to make what it. What is yeah. your I was but I'm curious, Dan. I actually don't Google myself. Like that uh, is not enough. a thing that I do pretty much ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it might be different for women than men, Dan. Yeah, okay, that's a that's a fair point, Anna. I'm going to allow that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's accurate. Yeah. I do what I tend to do 
is mm-hmm. definitely Google, but it's like rabbit holes. It's like, I get this idea, like, I'll be like, hmm, <laughs> I'm using Microsoft Word to write this. Is Microsoft Word really the best word processing program? I should do some research on other r- word processing programs. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's actually like, sometimes I will go down some rabbit hole of plot or, you know, some world building that I'm sort of curious about or what have you. Um, also, for me, Twitter is probably the, the best procrastinator. There's no other way to put it. I'm also a, a cleaning procrastinator. If I can, that, I, can oh. somehow, I can justify cleaning all the time. I, I wish I was a cleaning procrastinator. That would be a far more productive way of procrastinating. I tend to only clean if I'm annoyed. Like if I'm angry at something, that's that's when I clean, actually. It's interesting. I've actually done that, too. That's another, yeah. like, when I was living with my ex-husband, sometimes I would <laughs> clean in anger at him because he yep. left stuff around him. And the logic is not logic. It's like, I'll show him. I'll pick up after him. <laughs> no, I think, so. I, I for me at least, cleaning works because cleaning can also, there can be like, you can do it aggressively, like you yeah. slam drawers shut or, yeah. you know, you can, you can do it in a passive-aggressive way, so that can also work. Well, Dan, I have another question. Okay, yes, Anna? Is there IR in this show? Anna, without IR, wounds would never be created or healed. There is a gossamer wisp of international relations in this show. There's not a ton. But there is some. I think the primary source of IR comes not so much in the mortal realm that we see, but in the relations between the various sort of creatures of uh, the endless and the gods and, and their realms. So one of the most interesting things I thought actually was Dream's genuine respect for Lucifer when entering Hades. It was clear that he talked about, like, there are certain rules that have to be obeyed and, and so on and so forth. And again, this might be, you know, a credit to Sturbridge as an actor, but Dream usually isn't afraid throughout this first season, but the one time you sense like he's at least somewhat worried about his own precarity is that that sequence where he visits Lucifer. So that was, I thought, well done. At the same time, I would assume that everyone else's desire to take down Dream is in some ways a just sort of classic innate lust for power kind of thing. Although this bothered me, again, this goes back to what you said. I wanted to know why everyone wanted to take down Dream. It wasn't immediately obvious to me why what Dream did was somehow so threatening or so problematic for all of these other realms. And I think I would have liked to have had a little more explanation for that. But there's no, you know, like I I would say desire and despair and death and Hades and so on and so forth. You know, you might as well be talking about 19th century Europe in terms of, of, you know, various attempts to constrain Dream's power. And, you know, I, I think in some ways, Weirdly, for all these notions that these are, we're talking about gods or demigods or, or the endless, they seem to act or think about power an awful lot like man does. They're not all that different from, from mankind that way. And, and indeed, I think in some ways that made, I will go back to, to Death's performance and to uh, the actress. Death was the one sort of, of god that I think doesn't act like that. And it's a credit to the performance. I think, and also the idea of, of someone who's actually not human and was exceptionally well done. I have a question about yes? a possible IR, in influx of IR, which is, okay. could you see the imprisonment of Dream and his escape as a colonization and the reaction of the colonized oh. to having successfully thrown off the yoke of the colonizer? 
I have an answer, but I'm not sure you're going to like it. Are you saying that in this, in that metaphor, dream is the colonized? Yeah. See, the problem is, is that I would invert it. Oh, you interesting. Would argue, I would definitely invert it. You, I, the, the only way you can look at this is that it is the humans who feel themselves colonized by the endless. Um, well, there are other ones I mean, with real power. It's true, right? Exactly. And so, to be fair, like that's why Burgess does what he does. You can you can think he's a buffoon, but like you, his motivation is entirely this feeling that he's a pawn in front of all of these gods, and it, it explains entirely why he doesn't release Dream. It's in some ways like capturing a viceroy or something. So, yeah, yeah I think in that sense, you could perhaps argue that it's an anti-imperialist sentiment. And I think again, this actually speaks to. Dream's evolution over time, because I think he does sort of see himself as better than humans at the start of the season. But by the end, I think he does recognize that, you know, there's not as much difference between them as, as perhaps he thought. And I think that's actually captured nicely in the same episode that you he meets death. There's also this there's this short uh, plot in which he sees someone who is not going to die and sort of meets him century after century after century and, and finally acknowledges at the end that this man is a friend to him which is a very human concept. So, Anna, I have a question for you. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this television show? Oh, Dan. <laughs> what power would capitalism have if those imprisoned here were not able to dream of freedom? <laughs> Do go on. Capitalism works best when people think it is the way to achieve their dreams. When the dream is the thing that is stretched out beyond us, it's the carrot at the end of the stick, right? It's what keeps us working, following your dream job, you know, the hustle and the side gig. Or if it's an escape, when we think of dreams as something we work towards or as something just completely separate from ourselves and not as perhaps a vision of how to make our immediate reality better. Mm -hmm. I do think that... The way that Morpheus talks about dreams or the way they seem to be presented, it is that, that they coexist yeah. next to reality, right? right. Like dreams aren't yeah. something that you stretch towards. They're not something that's better than the reality. It's just parallel reality. But also enables you to exist in reality. Yes, or, like or they, 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 you can't have one without the other, right? Like right. the, the yeah. dreams are just a part of existing. Yeah. And it's not something, again, not something you aim towards, not something that is only happening when you are asleep, but just is part of who you are. Now that said, Dream lives in a castle. <laughs> and I think it's fair to say he exploits his workers. Yeah. He's essentially a landlord. <laughs> and in the way that we have constructed achievement in late capitalism, that is the thing that the working class tries to accomplish right like to be to better themselves to climb the class ladder to get to the point where you're the landlord right like right. that's success yeah. in our world it isn't making everybody <laughs> it isn't revolutionizing the working class it isn't turning the, the class structure upside down it's becoming a member of the elite right it's developing your own ip as it were yes exactly and mm. I, I also think adorno would point out if he were here <laughs> Oh, I haven't heard Adorno in a while. I know. This, did oh, you miss is, me, Dan? I missed you, you talking miss about me? Adorno. Yeah. I did, yes. Uh, that it is sort of pop culture that propagates this idea that that's what you're supposed to dream of. You're supposed to dream of the mansion. You're supposed to dream of uh, of being able to afford anything you want. And 
that that dream gets replicated over and over and over, really. Like, again, mm-hmm. it's just pushed at us and it becomes less of a dream and more of an illusion. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is, again, something just unreachable. And it also turns dreams into into consumer items. It puts the emphasis on what you can buy, that a dream mm-hmm. can be achieved if you can afford things. Interesting. And so we cease to truly dream. No. And instead find ourselves sleepwalking, unresisting and docile under the lash of late capitalism. Oh, damn, Anna. Wow. <laughs> okay. That last line was just, that was lovely. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes I, I write. Sometimes I actually <laughs> write. I do want to suggest that I, one thing I think I will credit the show with is that, and this was pretty consistent is that the show makes it clear that Dream was not a good boss to start. And that, like, you know, Lucian has legitimate beef. Galt has legitimate beef. Even the Corinthian has legitimate beef in some ways. And so, again, I think part of the reason that the the season works as well as it does is Dream's recognition of that as a manager, he has been managing badly. And he's he's even worse than manager. He's part of, like, the the landed aristocracy, right? right? Like, it's right. actually a, a, a hereditary wealth. It's not even... Right, he can't be overthrown, as it were, but yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, but, like, he... But, but it's his recognition that he has erred, and he yeah. needs to do better. Yeah. And that, I thought, was actually quite well done. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, my God, I have... I, what is this? It's so unfamiliar. Oh, God, it's flying bezoars. Oh, oh, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> it's the debris field where we talk about things we didn't get a chance to talk about somehow we always wind up with a few things we don't get to dan it's true yeah what um, are your things not a ton actually i think we've gotten to a lot of them but I, I think i have three or four. First, i will say this show felt a little bit like the harry potter movies in the sense of it was like which british acting luminary is going to appear next Um, so like this happened first with David Thewlis, who unsurprisingly is part of the Harry Potter universe, but I felt the same way when you saw Stephen Fry, which was just wonderful to see, uh, Derek Jacobi as, uh, I think Erasmus Fry actually, uh, shows up. Also the actress that, and I, I apologize, I can't remember her name, but there's that terrifying sequence where John gets into a car in Buffalo and like the, the, the the kind woman, you know, is like, I, I, that was incredibly well done because I was really worried for her. That's the um, coiled menace. That's like the, the where yeah. you, you know that there's something malevolent there, right. but you don't know how it's going to be expressed or if it's going to be could, expressed. But like, that actress looked familiar and I could not figure it out for the life of me. And then I remembered she played the psychiatrist in Ted Lasso. That's right. Yes. 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 So no wonder and she was so, fantastic. Right. And she's very, it's a very different character and like very well done. So like, yeah. I, was, I was happy with that. I would have, I could have done with some more Joanna Constantine. I like the idea of Constantine as a woman, uh, and you know, quite. I like that that episode, and we do. I guess the actress sort of makes a, a cameo uh, a little bit later as sort of one of Constantine's ancestors. But I, I wouldn't mind a spinoff with Constant with Joanna Constantine. Is what I'm saying. We that are going to get a second Keanu Reeves Constantine movie. I saw that. For what yes, it's worth. yes, yes. Yeah. And I guess finally. There's a small part of me that thinks, oh, so this is a DC property? Are we going to have any crossovers? Like, is Wonder Woman going to make an appearance? What DC superhero would you like to see show up at this? My understanding is that in the comic book run, there is, Mm -hmm. like, what seems like it must be an awkward (laughs) mashup. Like, because... And we didn't talk about this part of it, which is that this has such a read of 
prestige comics, you know, graphic yeah. novels, that it would be so strange <laughs> to have Wonder Woman or Batman show up. Right. It would just, it's a, it's a different universe, right? It's a different vibe. The two vibes would clash. And it's a different, I would say it's a different universe. Like, yeah. the way that this universe is constructed, I believe that we are to understand there are gods, right. but not superheroes. Well, leave it this way. So that was why I said Wonder Woman, because Wonder Woman would... Like Superman. If Superman flew into a scene, we would be like, wait, no, that's not that. Yeah. We're not there. We're not in that universe. No. All I'm saying is Wonder Woman would fit, because in some ways Wonder Woman is somewhat derivative of Greek mythology, which is clearly one of the things going through here. But I I grant you, I just kept, like, being amused by the idea of, like, you know, suddenly Aquaman appears or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I have sometimes have those little inside jokes to myself, too, Dan. Yes. Okay. All right, my things, I also really liked Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian. I do wonder why he's called the Corinthian, but yeah, I was okay was never, with not knowing. Left. Yeah, fair enough. I can't believe we got this far without mentioning Patton Oswalt. Oh, God, that's right. I forgot. Yes. Um, very good. the voice of a raven and adds much needed levity. Yes. And he's a great foil for Dream. Right? That's true. That was, that was some good counter- like countercasting, I guess, for lack of a better. He's like, you it. told yeah. me, like I said to you that I appreciated what I thought was some self awareness and kind of winking acknowledgement of the gothiness of it all. Yeah, and and you said you didn't see it as much. It is primarily, I think, through Patton Oswalt that yeah, you get this. Fair. You get the sense that Dream knows that he looks a little like Robert Smith. <laughs> you know, like yes. I I imagine that Dream knows that Robert Smith is out there. And it's kind of like, shit, I mean, he stole my look. And wow, is that my look? Do I look like that? That, Wow. In all seriousness, that would have been hysterical if when Dream finally escapes, he learns that, like, there's a singer who somehow, like, maybe Robert Smith is some, like, distant cousin of Roderick Burgess or something. And, like, that's how he got He was explicitly, in the comic book, was explicitly modeled on Robert Smith, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know. Okay, that's amazing. And Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is supposed to be a little bit of Neil Gaiman in there, too, which you Ah, can kind of see sort of the the long tallness of it. Fair enough. I believe. Uh, I thought the art direction in general was very cool. Uh, Sometimes it feels uncomfortable when a TV series or a movie lifts up a panel from a comic strip and just puts it on screen. Mm -hmm. I thought sometimes that felt obvious, but it was some cool work. So can't complain. And then I like gender swaps and identity swaps. I think that it's a cool thing to do that doesn't quite cover it i think that that's a way of acknowledging that we have had this one kind of identity centered for a long time you know and and this is particularly a a property that it doesn't need to be it's not necessary yeah and if Um, we're already in a fantasy world like yeah why not like why not just say in this world this thing happens like we don't have the same necessarily the same kinds of oppression that we have in this world right it was interesting to me by the way that i i you maybe you know was was the corinthian gay in the in the comic i don't know and like, i that do would know be... there was discussion not surprisingly about mm-hmm. whether or not he was in kind of the gay villain trope i don't think he was like he was gay and he was a villain i don't think it was like it's gay not, villain, I mean, I so, to yeah. some degree, it's not ours to say, right? That is fair enough, yeah. But to the extent I have an opinion or feel like I, I can comment on it, I do think that they avoided making that a character trait. Right. Like, gayness wasn't 
just who he was, which is that's sort of when you get into trouble when like the queerness is a part of the villainy. Like right, you, and that clearly was not. This yeah. was this was this was someone who was villainous. Oh, and his sexual preference was that he was gay. Like yeah. I think that's how I saw it. And, and I there was, was like a well. lot of like switch hitting throughout the <laughs> throughout <Yeah>. the series, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And it just made they made it very clear, like in this universe, like everything's game, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything goes. Is Everything goes. <laughs> yes, Dan. It is so nice to do another episode with you. It is. We were not quite in the glass bowl for for a century, but like you know, I feel like we've escaped and we can finally. Someone smudged the rune circle with their foot, and now we we are free. Exactly. Yes. And Dan, we have a lovely way of closing. Keep this channel open for more.